Well, it's that time of year. You go into the stores, and there's the Christmas decorations, right? And they're just bidding you to come forward. Come forward to Christmas. But the real subtle line is, come forward and spend your money with us. Are they really interested in you having a great Christmas? Or are they just interested in getting a jump start on when the majority of profitability comes in for them as a store? Well, if you walk into the stores with the decorations, to me, I only shop at two places of, of retail other than Lowe's and those kinds of places, but I'm, I, I'm a Costco guy and a Sam's guy. So a Costco guy and a Sam's guy, you're sitting there going, wow, those are some beautiful trees. Those are some beautiful decorations. I think in terms of us decorating our facility, and then I'm like, I don't know if we're going to be able to decorate either facility with the way things are going because we're going to be between two worlds. But uh, one of the things that's always been attractive to me because we had it in our family with our kids growing up is a train, a train around your tree. Do any of you do that tradition, a train around your tree? Well, I used to have very nice locomotive trains and toy trains when I was a kid growing up, but when when we um, had our kids in the younger years, we had this train that would go around the Christmas tree. And it would toot, toot, right, you know, and a jingle, you know, sing a song, that kind of thing. And inevitably, you had to make sure on Christmas morning, you got down, you got the train turned on, you got the fireplace lit, everything to get the kids out. So you had these perfect kind of moments. Well, inevitably, what would happen with the choo-choo train was the choo-choo train would go off the track. And there the choo-choo train would be off the track in the prime moment when you're trying to get the camera and the video going, choo-choo, right? It's not going anywhere. It's ruining the whole atmosphere because the train is off the tracks on the big day. Well, I don't know about you if you've ever experienced playing with trains to get off the tracks or something else, but I experience in my life, getting off the track personally and doing that. Have you ever felt like you're off the track spiritually? And you're just... You're not going anywhere. There is no atmosphere. There is no smell. There is no aroma to your life. You are just stuck off of the track. Well, today I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk about getting on track. When I pulled in this morning, and I always pull in praying over the facility and God for what he's doing today, I just felt that there was at least one person here today who needed to know this, that if you're stuck and you're off the track spiritually or your whole life's off the track, you can get back on track. You can get back on track because God's been doing it time and time and time again. For all human history, where human beings mess up, they get off the track, or they're wandering way far from God, or they're indifferent, and he comes along and he says, let me help you with this. And he would say to you this morning, if you're that individual, don't give up. Don't burn out your engines. Calm down. Let the Lord come. And like the good father I was, I would slip down and I would get the train back on the track just in time for us to do the video for Christmas. This week was a week that not only we would describe as a week where maybe there's some of us that are off our track, but some things happened in our country that you would say, 
there again it goes, evidence that this country is off the track. If you're off the track, one of the most critical things to do is a statement that you've probably heard before, and it's a statement I use often when I'm interacting with people or even investigating my own life It's a, if it's a miss, and it's this statement. Defining reality is the first step towards progress. Defining reality is the first step towards progress. So many times we're working on problems that don't exist or we're worried about things that really aren't happening and we have to define what's wrong. I remember when trains first used to go off the track for me, I thought something was wrong with the engine or this and that and then you get down and you see the really small wheels underneath and one of them's off. You got to define reality. So if you're off the track this morning and you're needing to get back on, let's do some evaluation. What's really wrong? These two individuals in our nation this week uh, have their mug shots, if you will, plastered on media. Why is that? Well, the gentleman on the left decided that it would be a good idea to send, what is it, up to 14 pipe bombs now, or supposed pipe bombs in the mail, to prominent people to do what? I don't know. Put fear in people, get rid of his anger, try to make a statement, whatever it is. Police, FBI, found him pretty quick. Thank God. And he's in custody, sitting in a cell probably this morning. And the guy on the right, tragically, yesterday decided that, uh, in his opinion, all Jews must die and walked into a synagogue yesterday morning in Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh, and killed 11 people as they were having a baby naming ceremony. Thankfully... SWAT teams, police were there, four policemen were shot, not fatally, but they were able to apprehend him. Do you think those two men on this slide need to define reality? Maybe define reality would be the first step of progress for them. But maybe it's also for us as a nation to define reality. Define reality was it just an evil act. Was it a sicko act? Was it a political maneuver? That's not the reality that needs to be defined. And there'll be pundits that talk about all those kinds of angles and dimensions. I'm still waiting for the pundit or even the politician to stand up and define reality that what occurred with the pipe bombs, with the man on the left, and with the killings in the synagogue, with the man on the right, comes down to the reality of what we talked about last week, and that is sin. There is sin in the camp, in the camp of the human soul. And because sin is in the camp of the human souls, and it's running more rampant, I believe, in our nation today and even around the world, there is the sin in the camp at large in political systems, in uh, civil organizations, in the nation um, and community environments, there is sin in the camp. And ultimately, sin in the camp is inattentiveness to God. There's been a movement towards more what's called lawlessness in our country because there is more godlessness. And that's not just the preacher getting on his hobby horse. and It's defined clearly 
if you look at the history of a nation. Now, it's interesting. Some of you, uh, maybe not many, probably, um, but maybe, if you were in psychology at one time a few years ago, there was a man who was named one of the 100 most significant individuals in Life magazine when it was still around back in the 1990s. His name was Carl Menninger. And Carl Menninger was a psychologist, and he wrote a lot of different influential books, probably none more influential on the modern consciousness than the book he wrote entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. Whatever Became of Sin. He says this, the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's lifespan and lifestyle. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word, along with the notion, why, doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? Is at the heart of the matter. He goes on and says this, whenever you look at sin as either crime or symptoms, and this is exactly sort of what happens, you can see it in the news, all right? It's like, oh, that's a terrible, evil crime, right? So it's all about the crime, or it's about the, you know, that, well, how do you get a hold of uh, bombing materials, or those kinds of things, or, or what about guns, those kinds of, it's crime, and so the focus is on crime, or the focus is on symptoms, like there's a sickness, something is wrong with them, there is a disease, all right? So you'll find those two camps, and these two camps have sort of taken the place of sin over the last 50 years. So you don't talk about sin anymore, you talk about crime, or you talk about psychological symptoms or problems. Whenever you take sin and turn it into a crime, what you've done is taken God out of the picture because sin is committed between a person and God. Crime is malfeasance between two human beings, wrongdoing between two human beings. So if you call it crime, you've really defined it downward. Or if you take sin and turn it into a psychological symptom, you've gone even lower because you're talking about things like outward indications. You're talking about heredity. You're talking about environment. You're talking about early life choices and factors that infringe upon the outside. So sin disappears, and in its place, we change it. So instead of saying lust, we say sensuality. Instead of saying anger, we say you're getting in touch with your inner being or releasing your inner being, right? We have all kinds of ways to sort of skirt around the issue. But here's the problem. We have a society and individuals spinning. And something's wrong. And what's wrong is not that they are criminals, though that's true. It's not that they got psychological problems, though that can be true too. At the heart of it, if you look underneath the belly of it, the wheels are off the track and there is something wrong. The word sin means missing the mark, all right? Or not on track, if you want to say it that way. And there's something wrong at the heart of an individual. Not just the pictures I showed you, but you and me. Now you're going to like, Carrie, you spoke on this a little bit last week. Can't we move past this whole idea of sin in the camp? I couldn't get there with my Lord this week. We're going to look at Joshua 8. 
as we continue our thoughts on what God was doing with the Israelites. But here's the reality. You're not moving past the subject of sin, even though God gets them moving on track again. And so for us to just have highlight moments, oh, sin here, without coming to a real focus, then we're not defining reality. I want so much. I want so much for your testimony to be someday. I handed somebody a card, and my gosh, they showed up. They showed up, and, and through the community of people loving on them, and through music and, and some uh, message from the God's Word, there, there was a place in their life that they came to commit their life to Christ. And their life was changed, and, and they were baptized. It all goes back to the big old giant postcard from relocation in December of 2018. That could be your story someday with an individual, but I guarantee you this, that individual's story will have no power and no significance to it unless they face reality in their life, the reality of sin. Sin is, I don't want to say it's a disease because then it goes to the psychological aspect, but sin is inbred, the sinful nature in the hearts of individuals, and it has to be addressed. Otherwise, there's no life that comes. Any of you ever wanted to sue somebody for malpractice in medicine? Maybe you have. I don't know. I've, you know, I got doctor friends. That's always a concern. You know, that's why the price is why there's all malpractice suits here and there and those kinds of things, and things do tragically happen. But as much as we focus on malpractice in physical things, I'm concerned that sometimes pastors and even churches, we should get sued for malpractice because we're not defining the culprit. The culprit is not that you need to just live happier lives or be encouraged. You have to deal with the issue of sin in your life and not just sin from the past, but sin in the present, sin to the future. And how are you going to deal with it? Because I want to define the reality so that not you get discouraged and weighted down. And in life group this week, we came up, you know, we were talking about sin in the camp. And I realized sometimes when you say sin in the camp, it's a weight. Oh, yeah, it's me, man. I'm sin. I hear I'm a sinner here. Those kinds of things. I, I don't mean to throw heaps of guilt on you and press you down and say you're a dirty good no for nothing that's not the reason we define the reality i want to define the reality so we can bring the cure and the cure is the life the power of god himself through jesus christ in the spirit that life coming to make you who are dead alive it's just that not people need to be new and improved they need to be replaced they need to have their life replaced with the life of Christ. And if we do not address sin, we are viable to malpractice lawsuits spiritually. And if we do not address sin, people will not know that they need the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, this story in Joshua is pretty intense and pretty head-on. And I believe it's appropriate for us as we look to the future of seeing changed lives, some of the changed lives that you would like to see happen in those who you are with and around. So the story in Joshua, Israelites, promised land, coming up on the east side, God moves them across the Jordan, 
They occupy, or they begin to occupy, the promised land on the west side. They take over Jericho. But then the story, if you remember, in Jericho, they were not supposed to take any of the spoils, in part because the first fruit goes to God, I think. Just leave everything there, and God will use it. Whether the Levites take it into the treasury or the temple or the tabernacle, whatever it might be. So, they were given that instruction. We know what happened after the miracle of Jericho when the walls came tumbling down. They took over the city, but there was a man by the name of Achan. And Achan did something he shouldn't have done. And so last week in Joshua 7, 1, we looked at, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. He took a garment, he took gold, he took silver, he took iron, he took coins, and he hid them in his tent because he had greed in his heart. Now, Achan was found out, but the sin was applied to the whole camp of Israel at large. And what happened to Achan? He was taken out, he and his whole family, and they were put to death. Now, that was a heavy story last week. They went to Ai following Jericho, and there they met destruction and demise. What would you do on the other side of meeting destruction and demise when you thought the Lord was with you? Some of you, this has happened in your life. You've been doing pretty good spiritually. You've been on a run. You were growing spiritually. And then all of a sudden, some things happen in your life. And boom, you're like, I think God just disappeared. I'm done. And you've taken some steps back. And maybe not that blatantly, but you are distanced from God. There's an inattention to God going on in your life. Well, this is what God chose to do with the Israelites. He chose to get them back on track. Now, what would he's going to do to get them back on track? Have them sit in the penalty box for a real long time? Or was he going to tell them to get right back out there? He told them to get right back out there. So Joshua 8, the next chapter, starts this way. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Isn't that great? Remember how Joshua 1 starts off? Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. So here's God. He's not backing away from them. There was sin in the camp. They'd gotten off track. He said, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to not be afraid because they had just got walloped. All right? And they're in a no man's land to them. They don't know anybody around there. Right? And he says, don't be discouraged. And then he gives them the instruction, take the whole army with you and go up and attack I. For I have delivered into your hands the king of I, his people, his city, and his hand. So he didn't say, all right, now you need to skirt around. I, uh, you couldn't deal with those people. Let's go find a different team you can go up against. Let's go to Jerusalem or Gibeon or somewhere like that. No, he said, you're going to go right back to I. You're going to go right back to I, and I am going to deliver I, that city, into your hands, the king and all of his people. Now, it's interesting because this is the Lord telling Joshua this. When Joshua left Jericho and he decided to go against Ai, you do not find anything in chapter 7 that says, the Lord said, I'm going to give Ai into your hands. The Lord knew what he was going to do. He was going to tell them, here's the reality, sin in the camp, you're going amiss. Here, though, he comes back and he promises them that they will find victory. He promises them that because of what Joshua did in chapter 7. He repented. 
He hid his face. Remember? God said, get up. This is what you need to do. He encouraged them to run towards God in the midst of their sin. Joshua did. And so Joshua is very glad to hear these words in Joshua 8. Verse 2, you shall do an eye and its kings as you did to Jericho and its king, except you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. What's up? Didn't we just get in trouble for doing that at Jericho? My goodness, if I was a friend of Achan, I would have had regrets. I should have just told Achan to hang on for a few days, and then he could have grabbed everything at the next city. God's saying to them, trust me in this. I think it really it is the first fruits, the, the devoted things. Remember, and we talked about it last week when we talked about not robbing God, whether it's of tithes and offerings or monetary means as well as time, that you need to make, take serious about hoarding devoted things that God says, this is for me. So in Jericho, the plunder was God's. But in I, he said, you can carry off the plunder and it's going to be yours to make you stronger, richer, strengthen more as family units. All right? So that's exactly what they went forward knowing. God is with them. And then in the last part, it's just a simple phrase, set an ambush behind the city. We're not going to take the time to go through Joshua 8, but here's what happened. They only took a small contingency to I, if you remember that, about 3,000 people, and they got their bottoms whipped. All right? 36 men died. Now, Ai was a smaller village. It wasn't as fortified. And so the people in Ai probably got pretty excited. Oh, those Israelites we heard about, they're not that scary. We can take them on. And so what happened in the revisiting of Ai the second time in the military battle is they took that which happened the first time and turned it against the people of Ai. It's interesting because if you study what Joshua did in Joshua 8, actually uh, military personnel have studied Joshua 8 as to what happened there and the brilliance of the plan. Because God said this, take a small little contingency again, take them at night, maybe trying to be sneaky, you approach the city, all right, and you call them out. Because they're sitting in the city going, I can't believe they came back for more, man. We're going to take them on again. Hey, everybody, out the door. Let's go out the gate. Let's go get these Israelites again. They didn't learn the lesson last week, right? So the whole city, the army, leaves the city with the gates open. But what God had told Joshua to do was to use them as a decoy to call them out. And he had sent the rest, and this time they sent 30,000 troops, all right? They were around to the north side or the other side, I'm sorry, the west side of the city. And when all of I's army left, guess what happened? Those 30,000 went and seized the city, took it over, and they destroyed it, just as God said. Because as soon as the I soldiers got out, running after Joshua's guys, the small contingency, they all turned around. Joshua held up, all right, his sword, his, his spear, And that was the strength of the Lord. And they got caught in an ambush and were sandwiched. And they all died. Pretty cool military story, right? Strategic God is. God hadn't abandoned them, had he? Even though they'd gotten off track, 
Their wheels were spinning. Their heads were down. They were doubting. They were discouraged. They were afraid. He said, do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Take your whole army. Go back and do it the right way. God doesn't want to abandon you if you're off the tracks today. You might think God's far from you. He's ticked off at you. He's never going to want to talk to you again. That's not who our God is. Our God is a redeeming God, and he is interested in being able to bring transformation to even the most broken people. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. The latter part of Joshua 8 says this. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord. The God of Israel's Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrifice, sacrifice fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites with their elders, officials, judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priest who carried it in. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gezerim, and half of them stood in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instruction to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. Do you know what he was doing in this moment? He was defining for them reality. So this scene, and you can see sort of a city there now, but there wasn't a city back in that day. Shechem was in between those two mountains. It was actually a, a beautiful, natural place for there to be an amphitheater. And so God put half the people on one side and half the people on the other side, and the Ark of the Covenant was with the Levites. It was down in the middle of the valley. And Joshua stood there, and he pulled out this. Well, he didn't have the New Testament and everything that we have today, but he had the book of the law of Moses, and he proclaimed it. And he declared blessing for those who would be attentive to God and cursing for those who would not be attentive to God. He pulled the people back to right-size reality of what was going on in their camp and their pursuit of the promised land. And he said, you and I, we cannot neglect the law of God Almighty. Now, what is the law? The law is the Ten Commandments and other instructions that were given. God gave those to Moses and to the Israelite people. Do you know why he gave the Ten Commandments? To ruin their fun? No. He gave the Ten Commandments so they might know what is right and what's wrong. Friends, you and I cannot leave it up to the individual psyche human being in our culture, in our world today, to know what's right and wrong. There's all kinds of crazy thinking, even with Christians. Recently, I heard somebody that said that they were going uh, to leave their wife 
They'd been having an affair for four years, and they believed God had told them to do it. I'm like, where do you get that from? Because that's not in God's law. It's, it's not there. You see, we wander all over the place. We're off the track everywhere. God has given the law so that we can know what's right and wrong. And ultimately, it's not just for the sake of right and wrong. It's so the sake that we can stay in communion with the most holy being who knows right and wrong. So the law is not out to kill us. The law is out to guide us. And so we call them back to truth. Because apparently, sin in the camp reminded him, this generation doesn't know what's right and what's wrong. And so he pulls out the law. He exhorts them with the law to be able to get their act together, if you will, with God Almighty who is in their midst, who wants to do powerful things but cannot if they are going to be dismissive of God and his law. Afterward, verse 34, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children, the foreigners who lived among them. Now, if I can take this a little bit, our journey ahead, as we seek to see people come fully alive in Christ and to his mission, we have to define reality. And the reality is going to require us to articulate clearly what's right and what's wrong. Because if you do not know what's right and what's wrong, you're not going to know that you're out of relationship with the God who created you. You see, sin is foremostly a brokenness of relationship. It's not just being off the tracks or missing the mark. You are out of fellowship with the one who created you. So if you want to be alive, if you want to have your life get back on track, we're talking relationship here. But in the relationship... We've got to define and have this understanding of what keeps us connected with God and what brings us separation from God. Romans 7, verses 7 through 13. I don't have time to really take us there, but I encourage you to study what Paul says there. He basically says that the law of God reveals three things. It reveals the fact of sin. The power of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, and the sinfulness of sin itself. Now, he lays this out to his people because, not that he wants to whomp them on the head and say, hey, you're off the tracks, you're not according to the law. He's saying the law is for this purpose because the law then puts you in a place by which you can hear the powerful truth of God and his work through Jesus Christ to bring you life. In that life, he records in Romans 8. In Romans 8, Paul does a masterful job of articulating what's going inside of you and me. I would... I would love to take the opportunity to go to the prison cell, those two mug shots I put up there, and say, can we just try to talk through things if you have a sane mind here to think through this because this is what's going on inside of you. There's death that's happened inside of you. You've been off a track 
God's track. Here's the hope he would have. And so after Romans 7, when he positions what the law does, he comes back and he says this in Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His only Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. For the sinful mind is death. The sinful mind is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it even do so. But you are not controlled by the sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ lives in you, then your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if he who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who is at work at you. Therefore, we have an obligation. But it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you, by the spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. For the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God, and and if we're children, then, man, we're heirs. And if we're heirs, we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering so that we may also share in his glory. But I tell you what, I'm confident of this, that our present sufferings are not worth anything compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 8 is powerful because Romans 7, talking about the law, tells us of our condition. And how far we are from God. And and we're hopeless. We're helpless. What do I do? Oh my goodness. Aiken, there's sin in the camp. And it wasn't only Aiken. It was me. I was greedy too. Romans 7, Paul talks about all the law that he thought he had. But then it says covetousness grabbed him from the heart. Because everybody covets something. And Paul says, woe is me. Who am I? But then he says, no, praise God. Now there's no condemnation. Not because I'm good. Because I got my act together. Because I pushed myself back on the track. There's no condemnation because of what Jesus did. And Jesus is the one who died, who rose from the grave. And his life can come into my life. And this dead life, because of sin, can be awakened. And I now stand with not only no condemnation, but I stand anticipating the glory that's going to be revealed in me because I have the spirit of life in me. Friends, there's people in your neighborhood, on your street, in your workplace, in your extended family who are dead spiritually. They're off the track. They may even thought they were Christians or walked with God at one time. And you need to come to them, encourage them, challenge them, continue to pray for them, invite them maybe to come worship God and give it another shot or something. But say to them, friends, you are dead. You are messed up. You are off the track, but we have the hope that God can make us alive in Christ. 
2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive and heal their land. This was spoken in Solomon's era concerning uh, the temple of his day, but it was instruction continually God was giving to his people. And what you need to do if you're off the track is you need to humble yourself. You need to pray. You need to seek his face. You need to turn and repent from your wicked ways. Why? Because we're sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And what happens when you do that? Well, here's the good news. Then I will hear from heaven. God says this. I'll hear you. And I will forgive. I will forgive sin. And I will heal. Friends, we have the most exciting good news to share with the world. Don't ever get dulled by it. And don't ever become complacent in your own Christian life, losing sight of what Jesus did for you. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. If you're not a believer this morning, you can simply humble yourself, seek his face, turn, and invite the life of Christ to come in you. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, let's make that a question. Is the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead living in you? If not, then you're flatlined. If so, then there's no condemnation. Move forward. Turning to Jesus time and again for him to heal and set you free. Some of you know who Lauren Daigle is. She's a contemporary Christian singer that's really pretty good. This week she was on the Ellen Show. That's always encouraging. (laughs) I was just glad to see that vibrant witness there. I guess Ellen actually knew her from America Idol way back when. And she had her sing a song off of her new album called Still Rolling Stones. And I want to read for you the lyrics of that song. The lyrics of the song talk about someone who's off the tracks, someone who needs to get on the tracks. The lyrics describe death but the reality that there's one who's overcome death. And the lyrics go like this. Out of the shadows bound for the gallows, a dead man walking till love came calling. Rise up. Six feet under, I thought it was over. An answer to prayer, the voice of a Savior. Rise up. All at once I came alive, this beating heart, these opened eyes, the grave let go, the darkness should have known. You're still rolling stones. 
You're still rolling stones. Rolling stones away from graves. Your grave, maybe. I once was blinded, but now I see it. I heard about the power, and now I believe it. Rise up. All at once I came alive, this beating heart, these open eyes, the grave let go, the darkness should have known. You're still rolling stones. I thought that I was too far gone for everything I've done wrong. Yea, I'm the one who dug this grave, but you called my name. You called my name. I thought that I was too far gone for everything I've done wrong. Yeah, I'm the one who dug this grave, but you called my name. You called my name. All at once I came alive, this beating heart, these open eyes, the grave let go, the darkness should have known. You're still rolling stones. You're still rolling stones. Oh, you're still rolling stones. Have you dug yourself a grave? There's one who's calling your name. Lazarus, come out. You're able to come out of your grave and get back on track because of the work of Jesus Christ. Yield to him and the power of his resurrection because he's still rolling stones. I want you to listen to her sing this as she sung it on Ellen this week. And while she's singing it, the ushers are going to come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings. If you want to commit your life to Christ, there's a place to mark the back of your connection card. You're interested in spiritual growth. You're interested in committing your life to Christ. We would love to be able to encourage you, whether in a newfound faith or being able to get back on track with God, let us know. But may you take the words of her song as she sings them and rejoice as part of your worship this morning that he is still rolling stones. Compared to everyone from Adele to Amy Winehouse, her new CD just debuted at number one. She's amazing. Here to perform Still Rolling Stones, please welcome Lauren Daigle.
dark this grave, but you call. 